going through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're actually going to be doing it for about two years. And we are up to Matthew chapter 4. The last time we were in Matthew, um, having our first anniversary service, and we saw Jesus being baptised. It's the culmination of chapters 1 through 3 where Matthew is writing and trying to show his readers that Jesus is the promised one from the Old Testament. He is God with us, Emmanuel. He is the Saviour come to take away our sins. He's the Son of God himself, um, which is what God says to him when he's baptised. And now, immediately after um, being baptised, he goes straight into testing. Uh, and that's where we're at today in Matthew chapter 4. So let me read the word of the Lord in Matthew chapter 4. And if you're reading along, we use the ESV, which is a, a good version. <laughs> Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by the bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command you, but he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him again, said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this afternoon. Amen. I don't know how often you experience temptation, the temptation to sin, the temptation to do that which you know you ought not to do. Temptation is really a horrible feeling. You're put between this decision of what you want to do and what you know you ought not to do. And the feeling of temptation is horrible because it really shows you where your loyalties lie. It tests you, which is actually what this word in Matthew 4 means. When it says Jesus was led into the desert to be tempted by the devil, it means tested by the devil, same word. Tests our faith, where is your loyalty, and tempts us to walk away from our faith. Sometimes we talk about temptation in sort of a light-hearted way, you know. You know, I'm tempted to eat that cake, or I'm tempted to, you know, to watch this show, or whatever, like, you know, a stupid reality TV show or something like that. Or we say, don't tempt me, you know, but actually you want to go and do it. And, and it's not a sin issue. Oh, that's why it keeps on moving. It wasn't on my ear. Okay. Um, but the reality of 
temptation and sinning against a holy God is far more serious than sometimes we make it out to be. It's a horrible wrestle. The, the moment of, I know I shouldn't, uh, but I want to. I want to do it, but I really actually do want to do it. And then you get to that point where you're like, I don't want to say no, but I, I really want to say yes. And, and we fight, we resist, we battle. And depending on where you feel particularly tempted in your life, you can experience it in all different ways. Tempted to speak that word of gossip about someone behind their back. To tell a lie, to improve your outcome or your circumstance. Tempted to flirt and win the attention of someone else. To drink too much, either for fun or to numb the pain. Tempted to yell and rage, particularly you know, for me as a parent, that's, that comes out a lot. Tempted to backstab and get revenge when things aren't going your way. Tempted to lust and pursue that which is not yours sexually. To even cheat in a game, to win, to speak unkindly, to be abusive, to purposely hurt someone with our words. And when we give in, not only is there the negative experience of that temptation, but then when we sin and we give in, that crushing feeling of failure. And then comes the uncomfortable reality of living with the consequences. You know, in, in light-hearted things, when we eat the cake, we put on the weight. But with sin against the Holy God, we, though our sins are forgiven, we still bear the consequences of the harsh words spoken and the hurt that we cause. Of the deception and the lies and how it catches up to us. Adultery and lust and how it wounds those that we love. Temptation is a horrible experience. And it's an experience that we don't battle alone. One of the remarkable things about Christianity, about Jesus Christ, is that he truly was tempted to sin. We see it here in our text. But throughout his whole life and ministry, Jesus wasn't immune to the lure and enticement and temptation of sin. Satan went after Jesus to test him and to tempt him to fall away from God. We're not alone in our temptation, and you are not alone in it either. You know, as a pastor, I am tempted to sin all the time. Even as I was writing this sermon, especially two weeks ago, just out of the blue, I'm writing a sermon on temptation, and I have this desire, this lustful desire. It's coming out out of nowhere. I'm happy in my marriage. I love my wife. But there it is, temptation. As I'm writing and thinking about Jesus, there's this other thought going in my mind. We all experience it. And we're not alone in it. And so what hope do we have in the midst of temptation? In the midst of the tests and trials of it, what hope do we have? The thing we're going to see today is this. Our only hope in testing and temptation is that our Saviour went before us and is with us in us. Our only hope, your only hope in the midst of temptation is that your Saviour went before you and is with you in the midst of it. 
two points for us today that we're going to see from this passage. Number one is temptation. And then we're going to jump into Hebrews 4 and we're going to see this, his sympathy. And I trust that it will encourage you. So let's jump into point number one, his temptation, as we lay this foundation for our only hope. You see, in the previous passage in chapter 3, Jesus is inaugurated for ministry. He's coronated as king by the Father. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's ready to go and make the mission of God happen, to save God's people. And what's the first thing that happens? We'll look at verse 1 again. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. See, the first thing that happens after Jesus begins his earthly ministry as the Son of God, as the Savior, is that we see the Son of God, led by the Spirit of God, into the wilderness to be tempted by the Satan. The Son of God, led by the Spirit of God, to be tempted by the Satan, which is what he is literally, the accuser. And like I said in my introduction, Jesus was led to be tested by the Spirit, to test his character. And Satan came to tempt him, to lure him away from God. And one of the keys to understanding this passage is actually the location in which Jesus was tempted. He wasn't tempted by the river, he wasn't tempted in the city, he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And if you know the story of God's people, when they left Egypt and between the promised land, where were they? In the wilderness between Egypt and Israel. And in that time, they were tested by the Lord. They were tested to see if they would be faithful to the one true living God or unfaithful. And if you know the story of Exodus and Numbers, you know that Israel were largely unfaithful. They failed the test miserably. In fact, Jesus is, in this passage, going in to be the true Israel that they never were. Because they failed in the wilderness, Jesus comes now as the true Israel, the true Son of God, to actually fulfill what they failed to do. And Matthew gives us clues to this, because all the scriptures that Jesus quotes are actually from Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8, which is the part of the Old Testament where he, Moses reminds the people of God of their time in the wilderness and how they failed the test of the Lord. And so Jesus goes to that exact place in the Bible in all of his rebuttals against Satan because in that moment, Jesus is not just being tested as one individual. He's being tested as the representative for the new people of God, the true Israel. But not only that, Jesus is representing not just Israel, but all of humanity. Because at the beginning of creation, who was there? Adam. And what happened to Adam in his testing with the Satan, with the snake? He failed and plunged the whole world into sin and destruction. And so the key to understanding the temptation of Jesus is to see that Matthew is drawing these two lines. Jesus is coming in as the true Israel and as the true and better Adam. And if he succeeds, he paves a way for us to be brought into his perfection and his victory, as we will see. So let's Let's have a look, just briefly, um, at the temptations that Jesus experiences. Verse 3. 
the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And you imagine Jesus, he's been in the wilderness 40 days, right? How long were Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. There's this connection here. They were hungry, like, um, they were hungry and they, they received manna from God. But here is Jesus, 40 days, no food, starving. And so the tempter comes along to him and says, if you are the Son of God. Notice the last words spoken in the Gospel of Matthew are from God himself saying, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Satan is coming in like he did in the garden. And say, did God really say? Trying to get in Jesus' head, trying to deceive him, bring lies, trick him, force him to do something that is contrary to the will of God. Which is what he does to us. Confuse God's words, confuse God's promises, confuse our identity so that we don't believe who we really are and we follow his narrative. Jesus starving, 40 days, no food, and then Satan offers him this opportunity. It's not even sin. You know, for Jesus to command stones into bread wouldn't be sin. But he's testing it. He's getting him to say, what God's plan for you is not good enough. Make your own plans. Who led him into the desert? The Spirit. The Spirit is leading Jesus, and so Jesus, as the Son of God, is subservient to what the Spirit wants, and so he's waiting for God to provide what he will provide. And so Jesus says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. A beautiful reply a beautiful encouragement that in all of the fancies that Satan can offer us, our true food is God's word, our foundation. Round 2, verse 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city, presumably in a vision, most likely, I think, rather than physically, but I guess he could do it physically too, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you. Now Satan's using the Bible against Jesus, quoting from the Psalms. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Satan's trying to trick Jesus and get him again to test God, to go outside of the bounds, to prove that he really is the Son of God. And he doesn't need to prove it. When they left Egypt and between the promised land, where were they? In the wilderness, between Egypt and Israel. And in that time, they were tested by the Lord. They were tested to see if they would be faithful to the one true living God or unfaithful. And if you know the story of Exodus and Numbers, you know that Israel were largely unfaithful. They failed the test miserably. In fact... Jesus is, in this passage, going in to be the true Israel that they never were. Because they failed in the wilderness, Jesus comes now as the true Israel, the true Son of God, to actually fulfill what they failed to do. And Matthew gives us clues to this, because all the scriptures that Jesus quotes are actually from Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8, which is the part of the Old Testament where he, Moses reminds the people of God of their time in the wilderness and how they failed the test of the Lord. 
And so Jesus goes to that exact place in the Bible in all of his rebuttals against Satan because in that moment, Jesus is not just being tested as one individual. He's being tested as the representative for the new people of God, the true Israel. But not only that, Jesus is representing not just Israel, but all of humanity. Because at the beginning of creation, who was there? Adam. And what happened to Adam in his testing with the Satan, with the snake? He failed and plunged the whole world into sin and destruction. And so the key to understanding the temptation of Jesus is to see that Matthew is drawing these two lines. Jesus is coming in as the true Israel and as the true and better Adam. And if he succeeds, he paves a way for us to be brought into his perfection and his victory, as we will see. So let's Let's have a look just briefly um, at the temptations that Jesus experiences. Verse 3. The tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now you imagine Jesus, he's been in the wilderness 40 days, right? How long were Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. There's this connection here. They were hungry like um, they were hungry and they, they received manna from God. But here is Jesus, 40 days, no food, starving. And so the tempter comes along to him and says, if you are the Son of God. And notice the last words spoken in the Gospel of Matthew are from God himself saying, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Satan is coming in like he did in the garden. And say, like, did God really say trying to get in Jesus' head, trying to deceive him, bring lies, trick him, force him to do something that is contrary to the will of God, which is what he does to us. Confuse God's words, confuse God's promises, confuse our identity so that we don't believe who we really are and we follow his narrative. Jesus starving, 40 days, no food, and then Satan offers him this opportunity. It's not even sin. You know, for Jesus to command stones into bread wouldn't be sin. But he's testing him. He's getting him to say, what God's plan for you is not good enough. Make your own plans. Who led him into the desert? The Spirit. The Spirit is leading Jesus. And so Jesus, as the Son of God, is subservient to what the Spirit wants. And so he's waiting for God to provide what he will provide. And so Jesus says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. A beautiful reply and a beautiful encouragement that in all of the fancies that Satan can offer us, our true food is God's word, our foundation. Round 2, verse 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city, presumably in a vision, most likely, I think, rather than physically, but I guess he could do it physically too, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Now Satan is using the Bible against Jesus, quoting from the Psalms, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan's trying to trick Jesus and get him again to test God, to go outside of the bounds, to prove that he really is the Son of God, when he doesn't need to prove it. 
when Israel were in the wilderness, God was putting them to test. But when they had no water and they started to complain, they were then accused by Moses and God of testing God. Because they came complaining and grumbling, saying, why did you lead us out of Egypt and bring us here with nothing to drink? We're all going to die. It would have been better if we stayed in Egypt. But rather than putting God to the test by throwing himself off the temple and making God provide, like the Israelites did with the water from the rock, Jesus says in verse 7, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And there he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, which is when they put the Lord God to the test at Massah. They didn't trust God in the wilderness, but Jesus here is trusting that he doesn't have to prove anything. He doesn't have to make anything happen other than God's will. Round 3, verses 8 through 9. I think this is the most diabolical of them all. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Remember back to last week, last time in Psalm 2, that Jesus is the king crowned and all the nations will bow before him. This is the promise of the Old Testament. And now Satan takes him and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, "Ah, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This temptation here is for Jesus to receive the crown without the cross. How cruel. How tempting perhaps this would have been for the Son of God in this moment. To receive all the glory that is due him, and he already has, but to receive it without any of the suffering, any of the pain, any of the hardship. The cross or the crown without the cross. And Satan comes to him and says, here's a shortcut. Kent Hughes says it like this, the choice was infinitely extreme. The long agony of the cross or instant exaltation following a fleeting bow. All Jesus has to do is just bow a little bit to Satan. He gets everything without the pain. It's often a temptation for us too to shortcut suffering and straight to glory. We want to go through life and sail through life and and get the glory without the hard work, without the pain, without the suffering. It's a natural inclination. But when we sidestep God's will and plan and bow the knee to Satan by doing all sorts of means to to get the glory without the, the righteousness, we're falling into his trap. But this is enough for Jesus. Verse 10. Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, Satan offered him, Serve the devil, rule the world. But Jesus here knows. He is designed, created as a human, still as eternal God in a human body, He is to worship the Lord God and never bow the knee to anyone else. Here, Jesus is saying, I must take the cross and then I will wear the crown. 
And you can almost imagine, uh, you know, this is creative license, but, you know, Jesus knows the Bible well. He knows Genesis 3.15. He knows that one day he will crush the serpent's head while he's wearing the crown. And so Jesus dismisses Satan, and Satan has to leave because he is underneath Jesus. He has no authority over him. And so here we see, although it looks like a weird temptation, I don't think anyone's probably experienced a temptation akin to this. Um, If you have, tell me about it later. Um, But this is a temptation which shows that Jesus truly was in the flesh, able to experience the lure, the testing, the temptation like we are. Yet, he is the true and better Israel. He doesn't give in to testing the Lord. Even He doesn't divert from the course even an inch. He's the true and better Adam. He sees through the deception and the lies. Did God really say we must not eat the fruit? And he rejects it completely. And so as a result, and as a result of Jesus' continual fight against Satan throughout the rest of his earthly ministry, which we, we see in the book of Luke that Satan leaves and then comes back looking for a more opportune time. And there's many times Satan comes back, and he actually comes back through Jesus' followers, through Peter, to try and get him to take the crown without the cross. But because Jesus was victorious, because he was the true and better Israel, the true and better Adam, this is the result. And Paul gets this conclusion in Romans chapter 5. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness, that's Jesus' death on the cross, leads to the justification and life for all men. For as as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So in this, as we watch the Savior fight Satan, he does it on our behalf. His obedience means that we succeed with him even though we are complete and utter failures in our fight against sin. Because he is victorious, he's able to be the Savior. He's able to wear the cross and eventually wear the crown. He creates a new humanity. A new Adam flows out of Jesus, a sinless Adam that we will inherit one day when we are resurrected with new bodies. As a result of this, he creates a new Israel, a new community, the church, the people of God. It's an incredibly significant moment and a beautiful reality that we share in. And so Matthew is trying to show us here that in his temptation, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament story once again. The true and better Adam, the true and better Israel, so that he can save his people. Now, there's two ways we could go. Um, looking at this passage, okay? We could actually take Jesus' life and how he fought Satan and actually learn about how do we fight temptation. Uh, That would be legitimate and a fine way of going. But I actually felt led that I think we should go a different direction. Um, As we look at Jesus' victory over sin, it's potential for us to kind of look on and think, well, that's easy for Jesus, right? He just flyswats the devil and temptation goes away. But me, in my brokenness, in my frailty, in my shame, in my repetitive, habitual sins, what hope do I have? But the surprising and beautiful and glorious and gracious answer from the Bible is you have much hope. And so let's go into point number two, his sympathy. His sympathy. 
how are you going? If you are a follower of Jesus, or even if you're not, how are you going in your fight and battle against the temptation to do wrong? How are you going in the midst of your testing and your trials? It's common for us to feel beat up by sin and circumstance. It's common for us to think, I'm just so woeful in my fighting. It's common for us to think that I'm not like him. I'm so far removed from his perfection. I can't even come to him. I can't even face him because I've sinned so badly this week and repeatedly in these ways. It's common for us to feel so weak and ashamed of our sin. And so we think we cannot possibly come before a holy and righteous God in the state that we're in. And we often want to clean ourselves up before we go to church or go to God in prayer because we think when we get to Jesus, He's going to fly swat us over the back of the head like we deserve. But listen, and if you think that, it'd be natural to think that, but you'd be wrong. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer here is saying that Jesus descended from heaven to earth to be the great high priest, to represent us to the Father. And Jesus has gone through, as we've seen in this passage today, every trial and temptation. And therefore, when he sees us caught in the trap, when he sees us making that decision between sin or righteousness, when he sees us make the decision towards sin and the shame that we experience and feel, what is his instinctive reaction toward us? Well, we think he will be angry, frustrated, disappointed. We think he will look down on us. He will turn away from us, be ashamed of us. But what does the text say? The text says that he sympathizes with us in our sin and in our weakness. Literally, it means he takes pity on us. He co-suffers with us in our struggles and our sins. We think, I can't come because I'm so beset with weakness, I'm so ashamed. And yet this text says the opposite. You can come to Jesus precisely because he was tempted and tried in every way. He therefore knows what it's like to be in your position. And instead of fly-swatting us, he deeply sympathizes with us in the struggle. It's remarkable. 
It's not at all how I would be if I was God. It's not how I am with my children. It's not how I am with other people when they sin. Often, I'm frustrated, angry, self-righteous. But this text says that he sympathizes with us. Perhaps you've had an illness in your life, a crippling illness, a painful illness, or even a mild illness, and you know the pain of that illness. And then someone else gets the same thing that you have. You immediately know the pain that they're feeling, the hopelessness that they're feeling, the suffering that they're experiencing. And so you can sympathize with them in their pain. That is what Jesus does to us in our sin, in our weakness. Though he has never sinned, he knows the pull, the power, and the temptation, and the struggle. It can be easy for us to think that it was easy for Jesus in these moments. But if we think that, we've actually got it all wrong. You see, who feels the bigger pressure, force, and power in an arm wrestle? Is it the one who gives up quickly or the one who holds the strain for as long as possible and never gives in until the other person does? Who feels the bigger pull and power? The one who, when trying to lift, you know, do the awesome deadlift and pull it up, doesn't even get it off the ground and just gives up. Or the one who strains and strains and strains and strains and strains until they can get it up. You see, because Jesus never gave in to sin, he knows the struggle and the power more than you ever could. Because you've given in, I've given in. So often we give in, we don't even fight. And so he can sympathize with us because he knows what it's like to live 33 years and never sin and never give in and never take the bite of the apple. C.S. Lewis says it like this. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a life sheltered by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He's the only complete realist. Friends, Jesus knows your temptation more than you do. He's fought the battle harder than you have ever fought. And rather than looking down on you when you give in and when you feel the stretch, he sympathizes with you. Dane Ortland, in his beautiful book, Gentle and Lowly, says it like this. All our natural intuitions tell us that Jesus is with us, on our side, present and helping, 
when life is going well. This text says the opposite. It is in our weakness that Jesus sympathizes with us. Instead of recoiling, he sympathizes. Instead of rejecting, he welcomes. Instead of banishing, he calls us to him. It's his very heart. So what are we to do in the midst, in the midst of indecision between sin and righteousness? After we've given in even, what are we to do? Well, this passage tells us. His grace doesn't come to those who just sin and just stay in their sin. The passage says in verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Friends, for all of us who come to him with their mess, with their struggles, with their burdens, with their failures, with their temptations, with their victories, he will give you grace and he will give you mercy if you ask for forgiveness. He'll give you grace to fight the sin next time and mercy for when you fail. And he will always sympathize. He will never cast you out. And he will never turn you aside. It's glorious, beautiful grace. So where will you go? That next time you want to speak that word of gossip. The next time you want to lie and make your situation better for yourself. The next time you want to flirt or drink too much, to yell or rage, to backstab, get revenge, to lust, to cheat, to speak rudely. When you want to or when you do it, where will you go? This passage says, because he was tempted in every way, you can come to him and you will experience grace and mercy. It's the opposite of world religion. It's the opposite of all of our way of thinking naturally, and it's the beauty of the gospel. So friends, turn to him. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, and experience this grace. Hebrews 2.17 says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We've seen today his testing and trial, his temptation. We've seen that he's victorious and he rules. We've seen today that because of that, he has sympathy for us in our trials. What hope then do we have? Well, the only hope we have in the midst of trial and temptation is because Jesus went before us and Jesus is with us in the midst of it. So friends, go to him and experience grace and mercy to help in time of need. Let us pray. Lord God, we want to thank you that you are abounding in mercy, full of steadfast love. It never ceases. It never ends. 
It never runs out. It's always there for us. Would you move by your spirit to convict us of sin and draw us to your throne of grace? Would you give us power to be righteous and holy as you've called us to be, that we may follow in the footsteps of your Son in obedience and shine a light into this dark world? And may you transform us to be sympathetic, grace-filled, merciful people who deal gently with one another. Thank you for your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.